let's start with a philosophical question. Who likes philosophy? You all do, right? You just don't know it. And I'm actually serious about that. You, um, you can't live life without having some kind of understanding of philosophy in a practical sense. Here's a question for you. What is the fundamental nature of reality? What is the fun- fundamental nature of reality? And some of you guys are like, how long have we got? Well, we could, I mean, any of you who know me, it's like, well, we've got a while. We could, we could be here for a very long time. It's a massive question. Here's another way to put it. When you boil everything down to the most basic building block, what's the essence of reality? For the sake of illustration, um, let me take you back to the most prevalent worldview in our day, and that's um, naturalism. Uh, naturalism is the idea that when you boil everything down, the centre of the universe, the centre of everything, is the physical. That's what it is. So the nature of reality is physical. And it becomes the interpretive lens for all other discoveries. And I'm sure many of you have sat, you've watched TV, you've watched um, science programs perhaps with your kids. Richard Attenborough, is it David or Richard? Or Richard Dawkins and David Attenborough, is that right? There you go. You love that pommy voice. And he tells you things. And he tells you things and he interprets what you're seeing on the screen through the lens of what he thinks is the basic nature of reality. And that's the physical is all that there is. There are so many different takes on what people think is the basic nature of reality and they are vastly different. In fact, so vastly different that they can't all be true. It it just logically does not make sense. Uh, They're often at opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, And Christianity is is something that's toward the other end of the spectrum compared to uh, David Attenborough. Uh, Because for Christianity, the fundamental nature of reality is it's personal. It's personal. Now, some of you might push back on me at this point and say, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not really sure where you're going, but I thought the centre of all things was God. And I would say, yes, he is the centre of all things, but I want you to stop and, and consider something for a moment. And it's something that you've probably taken for granted. It's something that you probably, uh, a phrase that you've used before. It's something that theologians have written about for years. And it's a little bit, to be honest, it's a little bit like people talking about God's word. You use God's word so much, you forget that someone's word is something that a person says and, and it can easily just become a, a book in front of you and you can forget that it's actually a person. Well, this is another one of those, very similar and it's this, uh, God is a person. God's a person. Now, the word person is probably not something that you think too much about, Right? Um, the reality is that you use it all the time. You say, this person and and that person and those people. um, It isn't in the Bible. If you go home and you get a concordance out and you go, I'm going to look up person, the person of God, uh, you're not going to find it. Um, In John Frame, he's he's one of my favourite kind of heavy hitter uh, theologians. In his systematic theology, he's got a great section about the personal nature of God going to give you a portion of it now. The name Yahweh most obviously is the name of a personal being. 
a proper name. The Lord is not an impersonal force or principle. When God reveals his name to Moses, he presents himself as one who speaks and acts. He commits himself to deliver Israel from Egypt. He promises redemption and threatens judgment. He empowers Moses and Aaron to accomplish his purposes. Listen to this. He is not, therefore, an impersonal force to be manipulated by human ingenuity. He's a person. He has his own purposes, his own standards, his own delights and hatreds. He loves Israel and seeks the people's love and obedience. He takes his own initiatives rather than merely responding to events. Each of us relates to him as one person to another. Rather than taking him for granted or treating him like a vending machine, as we do with impersonal... Sorry, Frame didn't say that. That's a, a Sondergeldism. As we do with impersonal things and forces, we must always take his concerns into account, responding to him in repentance, love, thanksgiving and worship. It's good stuff. God's another person. Uh, he isn't a vending machine where you just put the right loose change in and you get the right result. That's the way that people in the Bible treat idols. You give them what you think they want and they'll give you what you want. It's not how it rolls with God because he's not... He's real and he's a person. He's not a force. And this is where it starts to get a bit trippy, right? Because God's not just personal. God is both tri-personal and interpersonal. All right? He is tri-personal and interpersonal. Now, that might seem confusing to some of you, but let me explain. Saying that God is tripersonal is a reference to the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one, but he exists in three persons. The other one is connected to it, right? Because here's the big problem for Allah. If someone wants to say that Allah is a loving person and he's only one he needs things to be able to be a loving person. And so in some way, Allah is needy. You see the point? The Christian God is like, nah, the Christian God is not needy. We know that from Acts 17. But this is one of the key reasons why God's not needy. And it's because God is interpersonal. What does that mean? Each of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, relate to one another love one another, interact with one another, enjoy one another, and so on. They love hanging out together. They love serving each other. Um, and it never ends. God actually is very self-contained. He doesn't love you because he needs someone who can love him back. He is perfectly self-contained within the Trinity. And you see a snapshot of this, actually, the baptism of Jesus. Mark 1, verse 9 to 11, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Look what happens when he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven from the Father saying, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. All right? And I'll tell you something, you know, sometimes people say to me, it's like, who do you pray to? You pray to the Father, the Son or the Holy Spirit? And it's like it's the conference call. All right? It's always a conference call. They're all listening because they're always all hanging out together and they like each other a lot, okay? This is the way Lewis puts it. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing nor a static thing, not even just one person. 
what I was saying before, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very centre of reality. This is the way Tim Keller puts it. Uh, he goes even a little bit further in his explanation than, than Lewis. Each of the divine persons centres upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to and rejoices in the other. Creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The early leaders of the Greek church had a word for this, perichoresis. Notice the root of our word, choreography, within it. It literally means to dance or flow around. Amazing, right? Here's the bottom line. God is intensely personal. That's what he is within himself. Now, I'm not saying that God's intense, although God can be intense sometimes. My point here is that the personal nature of God is not some kind of fringe thing to who God is. It's not out on the perimeter. It's not on the borders in the lowlands somewhere out there. It's actually central to who he is. So what does this intensely personal God do? Well, it's pretty straightforward. We did this last week. He writes a personal story. This is what we looked at last week, Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God. You know, God is a story writer and he writes uh, a story to tell everyone who he is. And we are living in that story. It's the story of the whole of history. You know, for years in my head, I uh, used to think that God's self-revelation was just a thing that God did. He just liked telling people about himself. But in recent years, you know, I've worked out that that's actually what people do. That's what someone who has a category of personhood does. They let people know them. They open themselves up. You know, if you're a person, you operate personally. And part of operating personally is you tell other people about yourselves. Now, there's a bunch of you here that I don't know. But you're operating personally even as you sit there. The way that you sit there, the body language that you actually give off, you can't help operating personally because it's the way that God's designed you to operate. You see, this is the essence, one of the key things, I think, maybe not the essence, but it's one of the key things of, of being a person is you actually tell people about yourself. And how does God, the person of God, tell people about himself? Well, he uses a story because stories are the best way to get to know people. Always the best way to get to know people. And God's plan is to tell you what he's like in his story. And that's why, as a side note, some things in the Bible don't always sew up and they're as neat as you want them to be. Because that's how stories work. You don't get to find everything out about every single detail in a story because the point of a story is usually about helping you to know a person. So God tells a story. And the point of the story is him is you getting to know him and being drawn into knowing him. What's the next thing God does? Well, we can see it in Genesis 1 verse 1. God made a universe that is personal. Anyone know where this is? This is Ravensbourne. If you yelled out Ravensbourne, you're right. Um, if you didn't, 
we just give you a prize anyway, right? Because we're a Christian organisation and that's what you do. Get an award or something. Uh, Gus Butel Lookout at Ravensbourne. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, actually, I haven't been out there for a while, but I used to go out there quite regularly and just sit and pray and, and worship. I'd take a camp chair through that fence because there's no signs that say, say that you can't go through it, so I'd just go halfway down the hill. And uh, I remember going out this particular day and I was pretty busy. My mind had been pretty busy just thinking about things that I was concerned about. There were a bunch of cares and kind of anxieties in my head, and so I took took time out and I thought I'm going to go and be with Jesus and uh, I remember driving out actually and half like not full I can't admit that I was fully doing it, but half tailgating some people it's like I've got to get out there and be with Jesus can you get out of my way all right um, so I got out there I took a camp chair and I sat down and I thought to myself I literally thought I have had enough of listening to all the cares and concerns in my head I'm done with all the things that I'm worrying about so I stopped and I decided this, I'm going to listen to Jesus. Now, I didn't know what that meant exactly, but I just thought, I'm just going to listen to Jesus. So I stopped, I sat there in my camp chair, and you know what I heard? Insects. Lots of them. There was one that sounded like a Ducati, because I had my eyes closed, and said, Zoom! And another one, if, and this is going to show my age, sounded like an old dado. Who knows what an old dado is? You're probably over 45, I reckon. Yeah, a few of you. Who owned an old dado? Yeah, admit it. Come on. I think that one was a dragonfly. Uh, it, it, it just, honestly, I sat there with my eyes closed and, and I, it sounded like I was sitting next to an insect superhighway. That's, that's honestly what it what it sounded like, and then the scripture came to mind, uh, Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Then I realised that God had been speaking to me the whole time. He was busy talking. He's speaking through these insects. And then I started thinking about it, and I have a vivid imagination, I started thinking about you know, flies do that thing where they wipe their eyes. Oh, I don't know what they're doing, but that's what it looks like. And then I started thinking about like exoskeletons, and it's like, I, I don't even know how that works. It's like mush inside a shell, and how does the mush work? And God was there, and God was talking to me. See, this is the, this is the scripture, right? Everything's about Him. The whole world's about him. You know, I, I think you could say that every single created thing is personal in some way, not because it has the category of personhood, but because it reflects who God is. You, you're meant to, you know, I could, I could grab a stone. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it but you could you could go how does that Romans one twenty says that that speaks of God's character so a rock it doesn't have the category of personhood right some of you going my teenagers are like that right <laughs> actually not you just got to be up at the right hour for it that rock is personal in some way why well two reasons the first reason is that it speaks of God's character according to Romans 1 verse 20 you know what the other reason was is he owns it now 
This is, um, this is my watch, right? If you didn't know that this was my watch and it was sitting on a table somewhere, if you, if you walked along and that watch, for example, was just sitting on this table and that's the only thing that was sitting there, one of the things you'd probably think is, oh, that's a watch, right? And you may not, you know, kind of, you may not be that crystallized in your mind, but that's kind of what you think, right? But if you knew that that was my watch and you saw it sitting on a table, you'd walk along and you'd probably think, oh, that's Peter's watch, right? Because there's, there's something about ownership and something being connected to something that can make something that doesn't have the category of personhood a little bit personal. And the reason why it becomes a little bit personal is because, because it belongs to someone. This is true of every single thing that you see around you, including people. Psalm 24 teaches this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, this is verse 1 and 2, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Let me just lay it down really in basic terms for you. Here's how ownership works. If you made something and you covered all of the input costs required to make it, then you own it. That's how it works. If you made something and you covered all of the input costs to make it, then it's yours. It actually belongs to you. So there's a sense in which even the things that we would say are not personal have some kind of dimension to being personal. Why? Because they speak of God's character and he owns them. But it goes further than this. The personal actually goes way, way, way further than this. And this is where it gets a little bit awkward at some points, if we're to be honest. Uh, And that's this, is that God exists everywhere in his world. He is personally present everywhere in his world. This is what Paul says in Acts 17 verse 28. uh, In him we live and we move and we have our being. Not only does everything tell you about him and everything belong to him, but he's everywhere. You can't actually get away from him. And what that means is that we're actually in his personal space all the time. You know someone who does that? They're just going to get into your personal space. My sisters did that. Uh, in the, we used to, family of six, um, vinyl seats. I think it's an XB Falcon, ex-police car, ice white. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Vinyl seats, living in Brisbane. You know, you lift your leg off and There's six of us. Big Sonder girls all in a sedan going on holidays, driving for hours, all right? This kind of thing wasn't uncommon, but here's, here's the reality that God's actually everywhere in his creation. He's personally present. This is what we know from Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David Powlison uh, puts it this way. He says, God is our environment. That's it. God is our environment. doesn't matter where you go, that's the environment that you're in. You're in the environment of God and his personal presence. But it goes further than this. Not only has God done all that, but God actually created people to be personal and relational like him. 
you've been around uh, Restoration Church long enough, you've heard this section of scripture, but I'm going to read it again, Genesis 1 verse 26 to 27, a critical passage for understanding how God has made humanity. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. We are different to animals because we are made in God's image and the animals aren't. Now the big question is what does it mean to be made in God's image? What does that mean? And you just need to know every man and his dog and every woman who's a theologian has probably had an opinion on what actually being made in God's image actually is, right? And here's the freaky thing, is if you actually look in the Old Testament, the Old Testament never actually tells you what it means to be made in God's image. What does it mean? Some, some theologians think that we're physically like God. Some people think that it's, we've got rationality like God. It's interesting, right? But is there anything that we can glean from the context and the surrounds? Any low-hanging fruit? I want to suggest to you absolutely there is. And being personal, relational by nature is one of them. Let me show you. Just let me show you. Even though there's not a clear, succinct Old Testament, Testament definition, let me show you a couple of bits. I mean, one of the, one of the, um, the most uh, helpful theologians on this is actually Stanley Grenz. And he, he makes the comment, he goes, he thinks that the reason why the Old Testament doesn't define what being made in God's image is, is because the whole plan the whole way along was that Jesus would be the image of God in man. And he would actually be it, which is actually what I think the New Testament teaches. But anyway, let me give you a couple of things in, uh, in Genesis in the surrounds to this passage that help us to uh, understand it a little bit. And so one of the things that you do, if you're trying to work out uh, what a part of the Bible means, you want to take some of the language and see if it pops up anywhere else. And the reality is that uh, it does pop up, uh, this language of image and likeness. It pops up in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 to 3 on the screen here for you this is the book of the generations of adam so we've got a genealogy here when god created man he made him in the likeness of god male and female see we've got similar language there male and female he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created listen to this when adam had lived 130 years he fathered a son in his own what's that word likeness after his Okay, we've got the same thing. We've got likeness and image. Now, what's it in reference to? Well, it's pretty straightforward. It's in reference to Adam's son. So, at the very least, what you can say is that image and likeness has something to do with family. Okay? There's an image and likeness thing that, that's family. And family are people that are actually related to one another, whether they like it or not. Who knows what I'm talking about? A few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. It's family, right? We've been made um, fundamentally uh, com communal. I mean, Acts 17, 28, I mentioned part of this before, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Uh, we're fundamentally communal. God's the father and we are his family. But if we go back in here, we see uh, also just uh, another piece, I guess, of low-hanging fruit for you this morning. Um, Look at the last sentence. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. What are the next three words? 
male and female, all right? Male and female. Now, <laughs> here's, here's one thing that being created male and female tells you. You're not actually complete on your own, all right? Uh, Stanley Grins has got a bunch of really helpful stuff on this. I'll just, I'll just run through a few things that are helpful. Um, you know, if, if God's making us in his image is, like, is about family, um, you know, it naturally follows that being made in his image will be about relationality because that's actually what happens in family. Um, you know, uh, Gren says this, the reality that uh, Adam and Eve were created sexually different leads very naturally to the conclusion that they were relational creatures. Uh, there's a wholeness in relational, Grens talks about, there's a wholeness in relationship between the husband uh, and the wife, the man and the woman that, that they won't have only on their own. In a sense, um, Eve's going to learn, learn more about her femaleness because of Adam's maleness, and Adam will learn more about his maleness from, his, from Eve's femaleness. It's, it's, that's just how it's all kind of meant to work. And, and it just runs kind of counter to the uh, instinct within us inst uh, to be autonomous. We just do stuff on our own. It's like, well, I'll tell you something. You weren't made to do stuff on your own. You weren't made to be self-sufficient. You were made to need the contribution of other people around you. You were created in a family. And you were made for that. Now, if you're not convinced that uh, uh, we were created personal and relational by nature, fundamentally, look at the summary of the 613 Old Testament laws that Jesus gives. Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when you boil 613 laws and commandments down in the Old Testament, what does it come down to? Love. That's interesting, isn't it? Is there anything more personal than loving someone and being loved? I don't think so. Well, how do we know what love is? Well, everyone knows John 3.16. I reckon 1 John 3.16 is just as good. This, this is 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What's love about? Love is about giving yourself personally to other people. That's what love is about. This is the way Lewis puts it. There is no safe investment. Hear that? It's a nice start, isn't it? It's like, okay, can, can I leave now? To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. Anyone give me an amen to that? If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, and we've all had moments like this, especially after we've been hurt, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. 
Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up, in, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Well, how do you give yourself to others? I'd say love is about giving yourself to others and putting yourself in a position where you can be hurt. Well, I I think biblically it it comes down to two um, sets of categories. One is knowing and being known, which pops up in Scripture. The other one, moving toward each other. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. It's at the end of the great love chapter, right? And moving toward each other is all over the scriptures. And the reason why these are so central is because they're the way that God operates. And they're actually the way that God's designed us to operate. You know... The personal, the relational is the way that God's made you to work. Now, you can shut it off if you want. <laughs> and, and you might, because this, this is the problem, we talk about this in restore groups actually, is that God's, God's made us to be personal and relational by nature and who knows that sometimes that personal relational pipe brings some sewer in. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It brings bad stuff in and you just go, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. So I'm going to shut it off. And the problem with that is that is the same pipe that brings goodness in. All right? And sometimes it's a mixed bag. So your question is like, this is what I say to people is to go, well, you can shut it off if you want, but you don't just shut off harm. You shut off help as well. And you'll end up isolated gazelle separated from the herd on the Serengeti there you go easy pickings if you want a human to be restored to return to normal human human operation then then they need to be known they need to know and be known by God know and be known by each other move toward God move toward each other that's how you fix a human Simple, right? Let me uh, give you some, um, some categories here, then I'm going to uh, wrap up. Um, to operate personally, to, to be personal, to be relational. Under this first category of knowing and being known, here's, here's some of your options. Um, you let people know what your will is. That's what God does. Um, things that you'd like to do. It's, it's very simple. I mean, we're not talking about going down into the basement, you know, where the radioactive waste is stored. Right? We're just talking about you just tell people about stuff that you'd really like to do, um, what your will is. And then even, even uh, shallower, perhaps, is like your likes and dislikes. You tell them about that. That would be a way. Now, you can, 
You can talk about really, really deep. It's kind of choose your own adventure. Did anyone read those books as a kid? Yeah, it's like you can just choose your own adventure. You can go really deep if you want. I could say to you, um, I like the colour blue. I, I actually do. All right. Now, um, if you think I'm stupid, uh, I'm probably not going to be that hurt by that. Uh, like, well, if you think I'm stupid generally, I might be. But if you think I'm stupid because I like blue, it's like, eh, I don't really care what you think. I just like blue. All right. Uh, and then there's deeper things. There's deeper kind of likes and dislikes. Anytime that you talk about likes and dislikes, you're actually being personal about stuff. Passions. You can talk about your passions. Talk about your giftings, uh, your strengths and weaknesses, letting people see those, uh, the way that people think. Have you ever had a conversation with, with someone and you just go, how on earth did you get to that conclusion? All right? And you might even ask a question like that. And it's like, can you just tell me how you got there? And when someone tells you how they got there, you know what they're doing? They're being personal. That's what they're, that's what they're, being, that's what they're doing. You can actually learn a bunch of things. And here's, here's the last one. I'm going to talk about this last one in a minute, uh, a bit more. But emotions, right? Emotions are really helpful in helping other people to see you and to know you. You don't have to be emotional, but they are really powerful in helping other people to see what's really going on inside of you. And I'm not saying for a second that we should stir up emotions, right? But I don't think that's the problem I would think in Restoration Church, I think we just suppress it probably most of the time. I was talking to someone before church about some of the, I think one of the weirdest things um, that I see is when you go to a funeral and someone's up the front and they're crying because they're upset about the person who's died and they say sorry. It's like, seriously? Like, where did we get the idea that at a funeral crying is something you need to be sorry about? That would be the place where you could actually be emotional, right? In that sense. So that's knowing and being known. There's, there's more to that. The other side is moving towards. How do we move towards? Well, we love, we forgive, we're gentle, we're merciful. It's, where, it's just kind of like I'm moving towards someone else, uh, celebrating. Just get right into it. Um, speaking truth in love, bearing burdens, uh, patience. That's, that's how we move toward each other. All right? Now, there is a lot to say about this, but I'm just going to go through very quickly five things that this means for Restoration Church. Here's the first one. If you hang your boots up at uh, Restoration Church, you can guarantee that we're going to be pushing into the personal like 99% of the time, okay? We are not going to have spaces where over a long period of time we have these theoretical conversations about things, even about theology, and we don't actually make it personal. It's just going to get personal. And it all comes back to the fact that we think, biblically, that the nature of reality is personal. That's what it is. So we're going to apply it uh, in ways that can help people to be personal. Here's the uh, second thing. We're going to provide safe spaces and places where people can know and be known by other people. Now, some of that, there's some stuff that's changing behind the scenes, which we can't tell you about yet. The leaders involved know about it. And we're just working some of these bits and pieces through, in particular, with community groups. But we, we are, are, 
we're concerned, concerned. We want to provide spaces and places where people can be personal. And we're not talking about you going to the deepest, darkest thing in your life, because the reality is, I should say in every space, because the reality is that if you want to create a place where people can be more personal, it needs to be more safe. That's usually how it works. So uh, no one right now has to be personal very much, right? None of you do. This is probably the least personal place in the whole of the church. Now, you can choose to be, but you don't have to be. You could just come to church, you could get your coffee, get your caffeine kick about five minutes later, um, make a few jokes, talk about the football and go home, and that's okay. That's okay. And no one is ever going to force anyone to be personal in this place, all right? And if they do, I'd love you to come and tell me about it, because that's not our gig. That's not what we're doing, right? But we do believe in providing spaces and places where you can be personal, right? Because here's, here's the truth, all right? This is, this is Peter speaking from pastoral experience. The things in your life that if the grace of God and the person of Jesus got down to those deep places, the things in your life that would bring about the most transformation are the things most of the time that you least want to talk about. Like we all sit there and we go, oh, we want restoration. It's like, well, there's some stuff that you're going to need to talk about at some point. And the, and the question for our church ministry design point of view, from that point of view, is we just want to provide a space where you can do that if you want. And if you don't want to, that's okay. But we'll provide this space. In fact, I've, I've written a paper on this because that seems to be what my life is at the moment uh, at the church, um, which I'm very happy about because it's, it's helping us to get really focused on what God's called us to. And, it's, and I've just mapped out the... the uh, it's a bit like going to the Milne Bay pool, right? Up at the shallow end and it just gradually gets deeper. And so I, I've mapped out where, what are all the ministries and spaces and places in the church where you can, people can, if they choose to, get, gradually get deeper uh, and more personal about what's actually going on in their life because we actually want to see people be restored. Because at the end of the day, this is the third thing, um, we at Restoration Church are going to talk about things that people at other churches don't talk about, all right? Um, I'll tell you this, every church is messy. The only difference between a messy church and a neat church is the messy one talks about it and the neat one doesn't. That's the only difference. And you just seem to know at Restoration Church, we're okay with messy. And we understand that even in a group this size, there's going to be a bunch of people that have got secrets going on at the moment that are wrecking you and they're wrecking the people around you and you're not talking to anyone about it. And we want you to know that Restoration Church is a place where you can talk about it. Because we... We are not in the business here of keeping up appearances so our church looks nice. We are in the business here of seeing God restoring people to true humanity. All right, so we're going to work on some of our spaces and places because we've noticed some problems that we've got with some of our spaces and places where people can be personal and we're working on that because we really want to see all of you blooming for Jesus. Sorry, I shouldn't say that to men. Uh, be a really tricked up, lifted uh, Hilux. <laughs> I don't know. 
Uh, four, uh, we'll prioritise relational orientation to or away from God over behaviours. So we're, we're just not interested in going around and pinging people for doing the wrong thing. We really want to get down to the heart. And it's like, if God's everywhere and you're a relational person, you're always doing something in relationship uh, to God, either for Him or away from Him. And so that's the issue for us. Did you love something more than Jesus? Yes, I did. Okay, Jesus is better than that. Let us help you to get back to Jesus. We'll head that way. And here's the last one. I told you I'd come back to it. People, you know, I've heard people say, I'm just going to go out on a limb here for a sec, for a minute. I've heard people say about restored groups, especially men. They go, oh, what are you saying? Like, I've got to go and talk about my emotions. And it's like, no. Restore groups has never been about talking about emotions as an objective. It's about you talking about you. And if you've spent your life not talking about your emotions, you probably have them somewhere. I mean, you're not. Remember Lego Batman? He said he doesn't have any emotions, only 100% rage like all the time, 24-7. No one is like that. You can pretend you are, but no one is. And so sometimes, not all the time, sometimes we're going to talk about emotions. Why? Because that's a way that people can get to know you. It's not because we love talking about emotions and making people cry. 